Would you, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our sovereign and great God, Lord, we celebrate you in this moment. Um, you said if you be lifted up, you draw men to yourself. And so, Lord, we seek to lift you up in exaltation through the word of God. I pray today that you would love someone through my words, Lord. Um, pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, Lord. Work a mighty thing in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Amen. So Friday night, I had a, a very frustrating moment. Um, my daughter and I went to Wawa to use the ATM. Um, I had received a new health savings account debit card, uh, had funds in there, and I was due to take some money out of the ATM machine and one up, stood online like you do these days at Wawa for a long time, and um, tried to access my funds, and I couldn't get it. And you know how you go to the ATM and there's that one person who just can't take a hint that there's no money in their account and they just won't leave and they just keep putting it in, wasting all the receipts? I was that guy on Friday. Um, and, and I keep putting the card in and I'm trying to get my money out because I know money is in there. Um, so after a while and holding up the line, I go out to the car, I call the bank, I sit on hold for a while with the bank, the bank says, call the number on the back of the card. I call the number on the back of the card, and then they say, because of COVID, their lines are busy, and to call back. And then it occurred to me that this was a new card, and when I got the card, there was a notice in there that said, action required. Because you're supposed to set a PIN code when you get a new health savings account. And so I... Everything that I needed was in there, but I couldn't access it because I did not take the action required. In your Christian life, there is nothing you can do to be saved. You just contribute the sin necessary uh, for Jesus to save you and to die for you. But in your sanctification, God has submitted a notice to you, action required. God has worked grace into you as a believer but he wants it on display for the world to see, and so there is action required. Let me read the notice to you that God sent in Ephesians chapter 2. These are three verses you probably know by heart, but I'm going to read it because it would be embarrassing if I couldn't do it by heart. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, pay attention to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the notice. There is a danger to being a Christian um, that is seen and not heard. To, to be a Christian that has a private faith without a public testimony. I would even say that there is a frustration to have a relationship with Jesus that nobody else knows about. That there is a frustration because what ends up happening when you keep Jesus to yourself and you don't work out what he has worked in, you inevitably get frustrated with society because you look for everyone to fix the problems that God puts you here to address. You will look to Congress, you'll look to the president, you'll look to the mayor, you'll look to everybody and be frustrated and wonder why change isn't coming. God says clearly, I saved you to be the change in your society. 
I saved you for a moment such as this. I gifted you for a moment such as this. I put you in a church like this for this time. That's good news. And so I want to deal briefly with this topic, this thought, this big idea. Because we have limitless grace through Christ, we must live a lifestyle of ceaseless good works. And so what I want to do is walk through a couple of texts, but starting with Ephesians 2, and just deal with how does God work in us to produce good works? In the same way that God saves you, he produces salvation in you, he adopts you, he calls you to himself. God is so much God, God doesn't need you to help do God stuff like do good works. That comes from God just like salvation. He works it in and works it out. And so firstly, how does God do it? Firstly, God positions us for good works. God positions us for good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is making an argument, and actually in the whole book, you can kind of see Paul makes his transition from, here's, here's who you are, here's what Jesus has done, and now based on that, here's how you should live. He, he, he writes the whole book to kind of instruct us, and in chapter 2, he's showing that all believers, watch this. In verse 4, he shows us that God, being rich in mercy, loved us with a great God. Verse 5 says, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him. And so when I say that God positioned us for good works, here's what I mean. In other words, Christ says, uh, we are loved, we are made alive, we are raised up, and we are seated with Christ. God has positioned you with everything you would ever need to do good in the world. When he saved you, he gave you everything. And so verse 8 is like a summation, if you will, of, of everything that Paul has said from verses 1 through verse 7. He's described who we are in Christ, who we were. If you're a Christian, you better understand everybody has a used-to testimony. All of us had something trifling that God saved us from. All of us, the Bible says, we're darkened in our understanding that we walk a certain course in this world. What Paul is trying to indicate to us is when you get saved, you don't stop walking. You just change your course. You walk the course of this world, and now you walk a different course in your sanctification. I like how one person said simply, your sanctification is not for you. Let me say it again. Everything that God will do to mature you and grow you is not for you at all. You get to enjoy the ride. You get to delight in Jesus, but it is for someone else. Whether it's the repentance of your sin, whether it's the prayers you pray, whether it's the marriage you built, the kids you raised, all of your good works are for someone other than you. The only audience is Jesus. There are recipients around that need to receive God's grace by way of our good works. There, there's a, a devotional I love called Morning and Evening, uh, written by a man named Charles Spurgeon. I love reading things by people who are dead because it's no more scandals. Like, if they lived and you don't know anything bad about them, then you're pretty good to go. So, like, all my library is, like, 80% dead people. And, you know, I'm trying to strive for more of that. I'm trying to just build a whole volume. If you died a while ago and you didn't have a scandal, I'll read it. Um, and, and so... Uh, my favorite devotional uh, is from Paul, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and he writes this devotional, and it goes throughout the year, but in October, there's this one I love, my favorite of all time. He writes it from the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 13, and he takes this verse, and here's what the verse says. It says, pleasant fruits, new and old, 
which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. And so Spurgeon uses the, the imagery here to talk about the, the relationship we have with Jesus, the church and Jesus. And he says, the spouse desires to give Jesus all that she produces. Our heart has all manner of pleasant fruits, both old and new, and they are laid up for our beloved. We desire to feel new life, new joy, new gratitude. We wish to make new resolves and carry them out by new labors. Our heart blossoms with new prayers, and our soul is pledging herself to new efforts. In other words, when you came to Christ, there was the, the first fruits, which are now the old fruits of, of the faith you had and the delight. Do you remember when you got saved and you just loved to tell people about Jesus? You didn't know the Bible. You couldn't put Daniel in the lion's den. You didn't know where Moses was. You couldn't get anything right. You knew two verses of Psalm 23 and John 3.16. But nobody could tell you about Jesus because you just felt so good that you were saved. And that's the old fruit. That's, that's the old thing that we're grateful that God worked in us. Us, but when you love someone, there should be some new fruit. My marriage would be pretty bad if I just gave a gift when we got married. And I just said, look, I celebrated you years ago. Like, I just trembled saying that. Like, it made my stomach hurt. <laughs> I felt some fear. Uh, God help me. And so in our relationship with Jesus, who is better than our earthly spouse, there should be new fruit if you are a genuine believer. If you came to Christ and nothing ever changed and your heart is still the same and you don't care about the Bible, you, you barely attend or are active in church and you just don't really have any delight in the things of God, you really have to ask yourself, am I a Christian or a church member? Coming to church no more makes you a Christian than going to Taco Bell makes you a burrito. It just doesn't happen by way of coming. It is a work of God. And so we work in labor before Jesus because our labor is from Jesus. So here's two things I want you to understand from Ephesians 2 before we go anywhere else. Number one, good works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of it. Ephesians 2a says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul is going out of his way to show us that what God has done, what God is doing when he saves people, is completely a gift. All you can do for a gift is receive it. You can't earn it. You can never be good enough. I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes I ever lived to get me into heaven. I don't even think I've had a good 15 minutes ever. Like, give me three minutes, I'm going to mess up at least one of them. And so we can't earn it, but we have to receive it. And so secondly, good works are the overflow of grateful hearts. Because when Paul says this is not your doing, what he's saying is that first part, 8a, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He's saying the whole package deal is not our own doing. The grace that leads to saving faith is all from God. But then he adds verse 9. It's like he's trying to, trying to make a good point to us about how much it is God and not us because he could have just left it at verse 8. But he goes on and says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul, if you read the New Testament, you'll know Paul always talks about boasting. Paul's theology could be summed up in a theology of boasting. Read Romans 5. Read Galatians 6. Paul loves to boast. His point is we got to be careful what we boast in. We've got to be careful in what we put our worship in, what we ascribe worth to. Paul's thinking here is that you can't boast in yourself, but you can boast in Jesus. 
As a matter of fact, verse 5 um, in Ephesians 2, I'm sorry, verse 7, it, it says all this stuff that Jesus did, it's so that, watch the purpose clause, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What Paul says in verse 9 is like a negative way of stating what he's saying in verse 7. God's purpose is to show how immeasurably rich he is in grace and kindness towards us. God loves to be good to you. It is his pleasure to be good to his people and to show the world how great he is. And so we see God has positioned every believer to do good works. It's not contingent on money. It's not contingent on your health. It's not contingent on you being employed. It's not contingent on you being uh, 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 popular in the church. If you are in Christ, you are positioned to do good. But, but that's not it alone. Next, we see that God promises us good works. Every believer has been given everything we need to do good works. One of the greatest tricks the devil will ever pull in your life is convince you you're no good to God. He will work endlessly and tirelessly to twist your identity around. And I think many Christians, at least in the West, have an identity crisis with who we are in Jesus. I don't mean everybody, but many in the church put their identity in Christ under their political persuasion, under their race, under their ethnicity. There is nothing wrong with being proud of who you are or how God made you, but when that is put over Christ, you have an idol, not an ethnicity. When you get to the place where something makes you happier, like what you see on CNN or Fox News, and it's not who Jesus has made you to be, you have an issue in your heart. And God will lovingly strike at your idol. And I would submit to you that's what's going on in America right now. All our idols are being knocked off the shelf so that we can be the ones to lift up Jesus for everybody else. But how horrible is it if the church argues over the idols just like the world does? How bad is it if we say, Jesus, I'm praying that you would pick my idol back up for me. Jesus, put my idol back in office. Jesus, take their idol out of office. Jesus, please fix our idols. And Jesus says, never. He will not share his glory, his office, his place with anyone else. And so in verse 10, Paul lets us know that believers are his workmanship. There's, two, there's a twofold meaning there when it says workmanship. Um, the word actually comes from the root word where we get our word poem. Poem. It's not so much that you are God's Mona Lisa that you just sit on the wall and do nothing with. But, but it's something that you, you place out into the world, and, and it's beautiful. There's the legal part of God's workmanship, meaning he legally justified you. He, he declared you right. Um, but then there's a transformative aspect in our sanctification. Your workmanship, God's workmanship, is him legally making us right with him and then transforming us through this process called sanctification. You need to understand if you have your faith and trust in Christ, you are God's masterpiece. I'll illustrate it this way. When I was in high school, there was a poem I loved called The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And, and the idea of the rose that grew from concrete is that if you ever saw a rose growing up from concrete, you would marvel at it. How did this rose grow in the middle of the sidewalk? And even if the petals were falling off and it was leaning a little bit, you would still marvel that a rose is growing out of concrete. Believer, you are the rose that grows from concrete. Because God has given new life to bring you forth from the darkest, deadest place. 
You need to understand, before you came to Christ, you were dead in sins and trespasses. You were completely against God. You were a God hater. You did not save yourself. You didn't know God. You didn't want God. Matter of fact, your God was something else. And when he saved you, he showed you himself and gave you new life. You, you, you need to be a little bit more easy on yourself when you, when you see yourself in Christ. You might have been through a lot, you might have gone through a lot, but this is why you need the church really, really bad, because the devil will convince you that you are so jacked up, so messed up, God can never use you, and sometimes you need believers in your life to say, dude, you're taking yourself too seriously. Like, I've seen you grow, I've seen you change, like, you're not all that you should be, but you're a whole lot different than the you you were back when you came to me. I was looking for somebody to say Amen. You used to have some serious issues, and then God has worked on you. Your serious issues are just issues, but that's a good thing because at least you don't have the bad issues that bad anymore. Amen. Amen. You need a close relationship with the body of Christ to help you see how you're growing. You won't see it because you see you every day. It's like you ever gain weight really, really fast, and you wonder, how did I get this big? Because you didn't see it. You just ate. You didn't look at the mirror every day and step on the scale and say, how did I get this big? And then somebody sees you and they go, hey, man, or your wife will, will tell you, um, you either need to get some more clothes or you need to work out or both. You know, it's like when Christmas comes and you get the little treadmill and stuff, you're going to turn that into a closet. And she says, well, maybe you should take the clothes off. This is not me I'm talking about, but somebody else here. Um, <laughs> Right? So, husbands, if you, if you agree with me, just blink and breathe. There we go. I got a lot of amens. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Okay. But, but we need to treat each other, our spouses and our children, like they are God's workmanship. Parents, let your children know that they are God's workmanship. Let your wife, let your husband know that they are God's masterpiece and you expect great things of them. Listen to Romans 8 verse 2. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have betrayed the, national, uh, the natural law. You've defied gravity, spiritually speaking. God has taken you to a place that in your birth state you could never reach, but because you were born again, you can do things other people can't do, like obey God like love God, like know God. And so I want to read three texts, make three points, but I want to lift it up. Imagine a diamond that you lift up to the light and you can kind of turn and you see it, it twinkle. I, I want to share three points. Number one, all our works are prepared by God, Ephesians 2.10 says. But then that's in the, the past, God prepared our works, but then in the present, God promises to work in us to do good. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The difference between, one of the differences between good works and just good deeds, good works are never in disobedience to God. And I would also add, it takes courage to do good works. It takes courage today to be Christian. It does not take any level of courage to call somebody by their preferred pronouns. But it takes courage to be uniquely 
Christian and to obey Jesus. And that is a result of God working in you. Verse 13 says in Philippians 2, to will and to work according to his pleasure. What is God doing in you today? Whether it feels good, whether it feels bad, he's raising you up and calling you to work out your own salvation with carefulness, with fear, with trembling, because he's working in you right now. But then when you look towards the future, the next point, God promises to reward us for the work we do for him. It almost seems like an oxymoron. God equips us for the work. He prepares the work and then someday gives us credit for the work. It's like, you know, you, you think about the scene in Revelation and, and we got crowns and we cast them back. It's like a boomerang effect. God's like, hey, good job. You're like, Haha, you got me, God. This is all yours. The text says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And so what we see when we hold up this diamond of, of God's sovereignty, we see that he's prepared the playing field that you're working on. He's preparing you right now, and he's going to reward you later. Chief of our motivation should be getting to the place where one day God says, well done, good and faithful servant. If you have any goal for your life that ends short of that, you're missing out. If your goal is to get to a well-done retirement, or, 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 or a well-done career, or even a well-done ministry in church, but it's not to see God delight in you on that day, you need to adjust your theology and you need to adjust your focus. I forgot who it was, but there was a reformer that prayed, God stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That's a good prayer for all of us to pray today. I want to read a couple statistics to you. Because in the context of our good works, it's so easy to say, go out and do good. But where and to whom? Let me read you some things about Philadelphia. As of last night, 11 p.m., the murder rate in Philly was 96, up 35%. The poverty rate in Philadelphia right now is just about 25%. That means one in four people live in poverty in Philadelphia right now. The incarceration rate in America is 2.3 million people as of 2016. So for everyone in prison, there's somebody's mother, somebody's dad, somebody's son, somebody's brother. My father is in prison and has been for almost 30 years. You have no clue the toll it takes on you to know that your father's in prison and when people ask you about your parents, you either lie or you change the subject. And every Saturday I get a phone call and I got to listen to the first 60 seconds of you have a phone, a, a phone call from a correctional facility. This call will be monitored. Do you accept the charges? What does it do to an 8 or 9 or 10 year old to know that their father is incarcerated and isn't here to play ball with them or to raise them up? We need people in the church who can disciple that young man. We need people in the church who can bring in families like that and help them. Listen, I'm not trying to argue whether they're there in prison and they deserve it, they don't. What I do know is throughout history, the church has led the way at helping those who were exploited, those who didn't have, and those who didn't have a voice. And so it is up to us to aggressively find those right here in our neighborhood, in our city, on your block, on my block, and aid and help to the glory of God. We don't need to get into every detail of their life. Our city is in an opioid crisis. crisis. Unemployment right now is 17% in Philadelphia as of last year. There are so many things that we can do, and I'm not trying to start a ministry, but I am trying to argue there's ministry inside of some of you. 
No church should ever just be built off the pastor. I know so many pastors per, uh, personally who are burnt out and are doing all the work, and it should never be that way. So maybe we need to relook at and reexamine how we do church. Uh, maybe church should be more than just Sunday. Maybe Sunday is where we come and we give God his praise and we celebrate, but maybe during the week we need to have a more battlefield mentality where we come together and strategize and pray and, and, and really go before God and bombard heaven for God to change our city. This is my personal opinion. I don't think it's going to change with just Sunday mornings. I think it's going to start with Sunday mornings, and it moves out from there. And so I'm not trying to guilt you, so please understand. I'm trying to invite you and to stir you towards good works along with us as we follow our pastors. That's not to say we send our pastors to go do the good work. And so in light of all these things that I've read, how should we respond to him? Firstly, we must pursue holiness and humility. Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We read that in the beginning of service. Two things you see there that are, that are significant. Number one, we are his possession. We need to live like it. This is going to sound counter to, to the sermon, but I think one of the reasons we don't do good work is because we don't have good rest. We need Sabbath rhythms in our life where we break away from, from the daily routine and all the hustle and bustle where we just rest in him. Sabbath is not an hour and a half on Sunday morning or two and a half hours if you came from a black church like me. That's not Sabbath, right? right? It, it makes you want it when you've been worshiping that long. You're tired. Uh, Y'all got a little easier. You don't dance like that. You don't run around church. Nobody gets sweaty. Nobody's laying on the front. Even though if you want to, you can't just don't do that in front of me because that's weird. But, <laughs> but God created you to rest in him. We need to put rhythms in our life where we rest, we regroup, we come together with community, and then we can do good works. Live like Christ has ownership of your life. And next, Zealous for good works. If you are in Christ, you are part of a priesthood. Everything you do flows out of worship. So your work on Monday morning is not just work that you do to get a paycheck. It's a place where you go and you take the holy presence of God with you to do and produce and be productive. God calls you to be productive. Christians should not be on the clock reading their Bible at their desk. That's called stealing. I was seeing if anybody was going to look up like, ouch. Some of you, you might be good liars or something, but everybody just looked at me like, okay, I got you. It's always at least one. Um, and, and so next, we must intentionally resolve to do good. This is one of my favorite set of verses in the Bible, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 to 12. It says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there, he's talking about a resolve to do good. Doing good needs to be intentional. We need some measurable, strategic goals as a church, as a family, as an individual. Isn't it amazing how we'll go out and we'll take classes on being a better investor, we'll learn about crypto, we'll learn about IT, we'll just take other things to grow, but we don't grow in our ability to do good to our community. 
We might have to take a class and learn how to serve the poor. We might have to take a class and learn how to help immigrants in our community. We might have to do something. All I'm saying is, what are we doing? We've got to do something. We've got to strategize. We need measurable goals. I tell you, sometimes Christians make some of the weirdest goals. I know some crazy, like, super Christian people, not here, just other people, and, and the things they have goals for are just weird, okay? You can fast and you can pray, but there needs to be a tangible change you're looking to create somewhere. You're looking to love somebody. Maybe you'll share your faith six times a week. I, I used to have a friend who used to have a prayer list. His name was Deacon Wilson, and he became notorious for his prayer list because people knew he really prayed, I mean, hours a day. And so if he ever said to you, I'm adding you to my prayer list, you felt so covered by him. And I remember at his funeral, he had people that he worked with, people in his community, and they all knew about his famous prayer list, that this was a man who prayed all the time. If you came to his house, you knew there were hours where he just prayed. Imagine if you had that reputation among unbelievers, that when life just goes wrong, they know they can come to you to get a prayer through. We must resolve intentionally to do good. And then lastly, we must live expectantly of God. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 gives us an invitation to trust God. Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We have to live in anticipation of God providing what we need to do his work. What that means is, no church can say we don't support church planning or we don't support missions. The question is just when. We don't, we don't change the mission based on the resources we have. We, we, we set to do the mission and we trust God to supply as we go. Do we do it with sense? Yes. Do we do it with prudence? Yes. But we still do it. Great place for amen. Nobody said amen. All right. And so I'll end with this. Checking the clock. Because it is our tradition here in the pulpit at Grace City, um, we give spoilers and ruin movies for people. So I'm going to join in with Pastor Rob and Pastor Ian and what they do. Um, one of my favorite, favorite movies ever is a movie called Saving Private Ryan. Um, if you didn't see it, too bad on you. I'm going to totally ruin it. Um, it is a World War II war epic, really good Steven Spielberg movie. And, and in it, in short, there is a private named James Ryan who has lost all his brothers, he doesn't um, know yet, and there is a army ranger contingent of seven men led by a man named Captain Miller who are tasked to go into enemy territory and find Private James Ryan. And the whole movie is this epic of how they're going through, they're engaging with the enemy, they're going into a dangerous territory to find Private Ryan, and eventually they do. And by the time they do, they fought and given so much that almost all of them are dead. And, and in this, this great scene towards the end, uh, Captain Miller, who, who, who is wounded now, calls Private Ryan over to himself. And Private Ryan has to lean in because Captain Miller is mortally wounded. He, he's not going home. He's not able to get up. He can't speak loud. But, but Private Ryan leans in. And Captain Miller, in his dying breath, having accomplished his mission of rescuing Private Ryan, he says to him, Earn this. Earn this. And then he dies. How does Private Ryan earn something he's already been given he can never lose? Captain Miller is telling Private Ryan the same thing Jesus is telling us. You can never earn 
what I purchased for you, but you can live like it is the determinant factor of everything in your life. Christ is telling us today, live in such a way where you know you can't earn your salvation, but you can work it out and make it the centerpiece of your life. Make Jesus central. Sometimes I hear celebrities say, keep God first. I don't even know what that means. Honestly, I think we just say weird things because Christians, but make Christ the center. Make Jesus the why to every what you will ever do. Does that make sense? I'm trying because nobody, I'm used to amens and you all like glazed over. So in that sense, uh, let us close in prayer. Our Father and our God, Lord, I pray you would stir something up in us, Lord. I pray that you would awaken to us the reality that you are for us because of Christ and you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. I pray you would forgive us, Lord, for any place where we've turned uh, a deaf ear or a blind eye to troubles in our society. I pray, Lord, you would give us a sense of ownership that when we see sin and brokenness around us, that yes, we can act on it. We don't have to act on every single thing, but there are some things you may put on our heart to act on, and we don't have to wait for Congress to pass a resolution or the president to sign an executive order for us to lead someone to Jesus. Lord, I pray you would work mightily in us to accomplish your will, glorify yourself, and increase our delight in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.